right to say that this, um, parag this paragraph here on the Trinity specifically is very intentionally by the divines written in a way that is simple and concise and consistent with the teaching of um, the church uh, universal, at least the church in the West, but um, the church universal. In the unity of the Godhead, so in the oneness of God, uh, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Um, this is a simple statement because in some ways it is very hard to say um, lots of things very confidently, um, uh, very dogmatically about um, the Trinity. Um, the Trinity is one of the great mysteries of our faith. Um, you can really, in many ways, the story of Christian theology the last 2,000 years is um, believers uh, trying to wrestle with what it means that God is both one and three at the same time, that God is one being and three persons. That was um, a dynamic that was really only fully revealed in the New Testament era, um, in the incarnation of the Son, in the uh, pouring out of the Spirit, in the day of Pentecost. And really ever since then, um, we have wrestled as the church with the implications of that reality. And, and that goes on today and continues. But, but where the church has spoken uh, fully and with authority on the Trinity, it has... Um, it has only said certain things and left much unsaid. Um, the language that you hear here um, in this paragraph, of course, um, is familiar because it is related to the language that's found in uh, the Nicene Creed, right? The great um, early creed of the church in the fourth century. Um, and I think that's good. I think that's wise. I think we should be careful if we're going to speak dogmatically. This doesn't mean we shouldn't contemplate the Trinity and try to understand how all the things work. Um, but if we're going to speak dogmatically and authoritatively, um, we need to be careful. And I think there's a lot of care in this paragraph. Um, I've included for you a chart there, a little diagram um, that is a medieval um, diagram. Um, are there more handouts somewhere, Jeremy? Mike's got them back there if anybody needs one. Do you need one, Donna? Matt's getting one for you. All right, so there's a, um, this image here. It, it comes from the medieval church. Um, uh, it's just a, a simple kind of engraving that they would make um, that um, would try to explain the Trinity in a visual form, um, in a chart form. Now, this, you know, no chart could capture the complexity um, of the Trinity. Um, so um, that's impossible. But I think it is helpful, and it's helpful even to see about, in some ways, how little... Uh, this chart is trying to communicate, um, which speaks to the richness of the mystery. So at the top, you have P, and it's Latin for Father. Um, in the, the bottom right, you have F, that's um, Latin for Son, Philia, um, Spiritus Sanctus, the Holy Spirit in the left-hand um, corner there. Um, so you have the three persons of the Trinity. In the middle, you have um, the word, Latin word um, um, for God, and then um, within each of those um, uh, paths that connect to the middle, you have the Latin word for is. So the Father is God, um, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Um, and then on the outer side, you have these, um, the Latin word for is not, uh, non est. Um, so the Spirit is not the Father, 
The Spirit is not the Son. Um, the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father. And yet all three are uh, God. Um, and so that's just a summary. This, doesn't, again, doesn't say everything that could be said about the Trinity. Um, but I, I love it for its simplicity, um, for the way that it, it um, summarizes some of the basics of what we believe, which is that we can distinguish the three persons from one another. Um, we can talk about them, but we cannot separate them in any fundamental way because they all are one. They all are God. Um, they are equally God. Um, they are of the same substance, the same essence as the uh, church uh, wrestled through in its early ages. Um, and yet we can speak of the Father. We can distinguish the Father from the Son and the Spirit. We can distinguish the Spirit from the Son and the Father, etc., etc. And we hold all of these things in tension with one another um, as we try to speak uh, faithfully of our triune God. Now, there are a few things that the church has said um, uh, dogmatically and authoritatively about the relations between the triune persons. Um, first, um, the Father is of none. So the Father is not begotten and does not proceed. Um, the Father is um, the generative one. The Father um, is the one um, who begets and, and from whom the Spirit proceeds along with the Son. Um, so the Father is of none. Um, the Son, however, is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's a distinction from the Eastern Church and from the original Nicene Creed. The original Nicene Creed said simply that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. Um, later, the Western Church added what's called the Philoque Clause, which is um, Latin for and of the Son or and from the Son. Um, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, Bavink, um, Dutch Reformed theologian, um, the late 19th, early 20th century, he uh, wrote this about the relationship between the Father and the Son, what it means that the Father eternally begets the Son, or the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Um, we don't mean by that, of course, just to eliminate some of the common heresies that there was a time when the Son was not, that the Father created the Son, that the Father uh, made the Son out of himself somehow um, and, and, and made him a distinct person. Uh, no, we're talking about the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son, who both have existed in this relationship from all eternity and will exist in this relationship from all eternity, that of a father and a son. Bavink says the special qualification of the second person of the Trinity is filiation, which is sonship, to be a son, Latin word for son there. In scripture, he bears several names that denote his relation to the father, such as word, wisdom, logos, son, the firstborn, only begotten and only son, the image of God, image, substance, stamp. God's facundity is a beautiful theme. God is no abstract, fixed, monadic, solitary substance, but a plenitude of life. It is his nature to be generative and fruitful. Um, the father's begetting of the son is not something that was completed and finished at some point in eternity but is an un eternal, unchanging act of God, at once always complete and eternally ongoing. Just as it is natural for the sun to shine and for a spring to pour out water, so it is natural for the Father to generate the Son. The Father is not and never was ungenerative. He begets everlastingly. And he quotes Origen here. Origen was one of the first of the church fathers to really reflect on 
um, this relationship between the Father and the Son. Origen says, the Father did not by a single act beget the Son and then release him from his genesis, his beginning, but generates him perpetually. All right, I don't know how many of your questions I can really answer about this, but um, any questions about that? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. Yeah. No, I would. I think that's a great question, Donna. I think it's a fair um, question and response to how the first paragraph defines God, which one of the th- ways it defines him is without body, that he's pure spirit, a most holy and pure spirit without body. Um, the answer is the second part of your question. Yes, absolutely. Um, there is a chapter which talks about um, the son as mediator. And one of the things that qualifies him to mediator is his incarnation, um, taking on flesh, being born of the Virgin, all the kind of language that we would see in the Nicene Creed, along with the discussion of his natures, divine and human natures, and the one person. So all of those things. And yeah, I, th- I think that what you're right, I mean, what you're saying is correct in that um, there is some sense in which that initial opening statement of God lacks um, reckoning with the incarnation in a full sense and in some ways that i think they do that because it's impossible to really to talk about god um, in, a, in a comprehensive way taking into account the fact that the son has a body is a body now has a body now in heaven what does that mean how do we talk about god in that way um, that that first initial definition is just trying to define god in his essence as he is from eternity Um, not so much how he reveals himself in his acts throughout history, um, but the rest of the confession does a great deal of that. And I think to some extent it's a matter of what I would call perspectivalism. I think we can look at God from one perspective and say that first um, section in chapter 2 of the standards um, that that describe God as um, a most holy and pure spirit uh, without body is right. Um, God is a spirit. The scriptures use that language for God. Um, and yet also in redemptive history, I've now to talk about how, what does it mean that the second person of the Trinity, um, who is himself God, um, in whom the fullness of deity dwells, is flesh, um, is and remains flesh. And, and to some extent, I think there are things we just have to hold in tension, I would say. Yeah. James. Uh, Absolutely. So like the Absolutely incorrect. As its miraculous force, um, as a as a truth that was only given to women, always Certainly not always the case. Yeah, you certainly are the second person, the Son, never um, was incarnate until he became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin. Yeah, that's right. So we have to account for that historical reality. Yeah, Eric.
Th yeah, I mean, I, we certainly wrestle with that. If by that you mean we have to say that God had um, flesh before the incarnation of Jesus, I would reject that personally. Um, yeah, I don't think you will. Um, um, but yeah, we have, we, sir, we have to think about that, um, that, that there is something about being made incarnate that is um, in the image of God. We bear God's image in our flesh. Um, yes, but at the same time, we do, I think we do want to say that God is without body. Um, I think that's an appropriate way to speak of God as well. All right, let's, any questions about the Father's eternal begetting of the Son? The Son being eternally begotten of the Father, this relationship between the Father and the Son. Yes, Scott. We're not splitting the church over that one. No, that's the Spirit, whether the Spirit proceeds from, no, I'm sorry. No, 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 yeah, yes. Uh, I will answer that question. Yes, it is. Yeah, let's let's um, let's look at the spirit. If there's no, I mean, essentially, the father's begetting of the son is 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 related to the idea that this is the eternal relationship for between the first two persons of the Trinity. That the father is always a father to the son. The son is always the son of the father. Um, that there is this relationship of of being begotten between them and and. You know, reading the, Apostle, the Gospel of John is a great place to really contemplate this and think about it. John really uh, draws out these themes um, in terms of the, how the Son speaks of the Father um, continually. All right, so yeah, let's talk about the Spirit. So Bavink goes on to say, um, related to the divinity of the Spirit, which was a big deal in church history as well, um, that, that the, the Spirit was also divine, not only the Son. Um, many of the first heresies centered on whether the Son was divine, and then uh, later um, in that fourth century, whether the Spirit uh, was also divine. Um, so Bavink goes on and says, The Holy Spirit is not, nor can he be, a creature, for he is related to the Son as the latter is to the Father, and imparts to us both the Son and the Father. He, has as close, he is as closely bound up with the Son as the Son is with the Father. He is co-inherent in the Son as the Son is co-inherent in him. In substance, he is the same as the Son. He is the Spirit of wisdom and truth, of power and of glory, the Spirit by whom Christ sanctifies the church and in whom he communicates himself and all his benefits, the divine nature, the adoption as children, the mystical union. He who gives us God himself must himself be truly God. I love that last sentence there from Bavink. That's one worth contemplating. He who gives us God himself must himself be truly God. We must, uh, the church has said um, consistently, must believe in the divinity of the Holy Spirit, of um, him also being one of the divine persons, if we are to faithfully reflect this teaching of Scripture. Um, now let's talk for a moment about this, uh, this debate over whether or not um, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, as, as as um, the confession states, as the Western version of the Nicene Creed states, or um, whether he eternally proceeds from the Father only, as the Eastern Church would have it, and as the original um, Nicene Creed put it um, in the fourth century. So Jaroslav Pelikan, who is an American uh, theologian, he's dead now, he's probably the greatest uh, theologian, uh, or not theologian, church historian of the 20th century, um, a really remarkable man 
he grew up Lutheran um, and was a Lutheran pastor for decades and decades. And then um, eight years before he died in 1998, he converted to the Orthodox Church, um, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, and so he wrestled with these things. Uh, this quote actually is before his conversion, so he was still Protestant at the time when he wrote um, these words. Um, this is a joke, um, but it's, it's a joke with a point. Um, he, he wrote, if there is a special circle of the inferno described by Dante, reserved for historians of theology, the principal homework assigned to that subdivision of hell for at least the first several eons of eternity may well be the thorough study of all the treatises that are devoted to the inquiry. Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father only as the Eastern Christendom contends or from both the Father and the Son um, as the Latin, i.e. Western Church teaches? Um, now this, this may be a question that you've never contemplated at all in your life, and that's fine. Um, but the reality is that if you look at church history, this is probably the most debated question in the history of the church in terms of how much has been written about it, um, how, much, um, you know, how much ink has been spilled, so to speak, around um, this question. Does the, Father, does the Spirit proceed only from the Father or also uh, from the Son and the Father? Um, I am sympathetic to what I think Scott was alluding to, which is that I don't know that it makes... Um, I mean, I side with the Western Church on this in terms of the best, most accurate way, I think, to speak of God. Um, but I, I don't, and maybe this is because of my own ignorance, but I don't fully grasp um, that this being something that is, you know, prevents the Eastern and Western uh, parts of the Church, uh, Catholic, from uh, using the same Nicene Creed. It, I would love for this to be something we could work through. And, um, and there has been movement in that direction in the 20th century. There have been uh, more dialogue, more wrestling. The anathemas that were set against one another in the 11th century have been withdrawn at this point um, from both the Western and Eastern churches. So that's good. And we're no longer condemning our, one another as heretics over our disagreement on this point. Um, but it is something that's, um, that, that still does separate the Eastern and Western churches. And we would be, of course, of the Western uh, church in terms of our heritage. Uh, Robert Lethem um, explains this, and then I'll, I'll get your question, Eric. Um, the spirit proceeds from the father. The question in dispute concerns whether this procession is from the son also. Uh, and then he begins to talk about some of the scriptural evidence. And this is, this is why I side with the Western church. I have not read even a small percentage of all that's been written on this question. Um, but... It seems to me that the Gospels speak of the Son, um, the Spirit proceeding from the Son. Jesus refers to the Father's sending of the Spirit at Pentecost in response to his request or in his name, right? Um, John 14, Jesus says um, that I will ask the Father and he will send the Spirit to you. So that is one way that the Scriptures speak of the procession of the Spirit. However, Jesus also says he himself will send the Spirit at Pentecost, right? He also uses language like that, that I will send the Comforter, um, the Paraclete. And later in John 20, after his resurrection, he breathes on his disciples. Remember this in the upper room. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit right there. So he shares with the Father in the sending of the Spirit. Moreover, he says he and the Father are one. It may be asked whether the Son does not also share with the Father in spiriating, breathing out, um, the Spirit, and um, 
And I believe, ultimately, that's the best way to describe the relation between the Spirit and the other two persons of the Trinity. Um, yes, Eric, I think you had a question. I'll come to you, Don. Yeah, I, I, I think that there's probably some truth to that. I would say, though, that if you read back through church history, even as early as the fourth century, the Western, i.e. the Latin church fathers were wrestling with, uh, this is really, the Western church's perspective is rooted in Augustine, um, who wrestled with these things as he, um, you know, he, he spoke of the procession of the spirit from the Son. Um, so yes, it wasn't only to, it wasn't until the 11th century that this got codified in the way that um, it is now. And yes, I'm sure politics were part of it, but it really is the fruit of a theological argument that had been happening, so to speak, for centuries and centuries. So, um, and and I, I mean, I, yeah, I think to some extent we get back to different perspectives on how to talk about God. Um, yeah, Donna. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's about relationship fundamentally. Um, begetting um, uh, speaks to a kind of um, a generation that um, a generative nature that results in um, someone being of the same image, the same um, um, uh, resemblance between the two persons um, that is a fundamental to their relationship to one another, um, and. In a, in a way, you know, from our perspective, that a father um, and a son are related to one another. Um, of course, the, the relationship between the triune father and son is, is you know, our, our relationship between fathers and sons or parents and children are only, you know, are dim reflections of that um, fundamental relationship between the father and the son, the begetting of the father and the son. Uh, whereas the spirit proceeding seems to be uh, something that, that has to do with um, communion with one another. Um, sometimes the, the Trinity is described as um, the Father and the Son and the Spirit proceeding from one to the other in between, that the Spirit is, some, is, a, is a way in that, that unites, it is the nature of the Spirit to unite things that are separated, um, Calvin says, um, to bring them together, um, whether that's the Father and the Son, whether that is um, um, uh, the humanity in Christ, whether that is um, God's will on the earth um, with the ways that it's, that it's not yet been done. Um, so that, that's how I would talk about it. Um, it's, it's a matter of relationship primarily. I don't know if that's helpful or not. But a little bit. Okay, that's fine. Did you want to say anything else about your comment earlier, Scott? Yeah, I ultimately don't think it's worth separating the church over. Yeah, yeah, I don't at all. All right, Daniel and then Jeremy. Yes, sir. 
Yes. Well, I guess I would say, on the one hand, I would not want to separate those things. Um, God the Father, if it, let's say that is what it's saying, would not, I would not distinguish God the Father saying, let there be light from um, the tr- trying, you know, the members of the Trinity acting in unity, I think is how you put it. Um, I wouldn't, like, always the Trinity um, acts in unity with one another because of its, because it's one God, um, uh, one being three persons. And so I would not want to distinguish too, you know, strictly sort of the son did this, the father did this. Now, of course, there are things in divine history where we have to say the son became incarnate, the father did not, the spirit did not. Uh, the son died on the cross, neither the father nor the spirit died on the cross, um, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but when it comes to things like creation, um, yeah, I, I, would, I would want to emphasize the unity um, some of the church fathers have spoken of it this way, that the Father made the world, made all creation, and the Spirit and the Son were the two hands that he made. Um, I think Arrhenius is the one who said that um, as to, a way to try to talk about um, how God made the world. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the language of the creed is right, that, that, that the Son is eternally begotten, that he is the one by whom all things were made. Um, so that's slightly different than saying, he made all things, right, and as some sort of individual um, person, right, that it, but rather it was through him or by him that all things were made. Um, and certainly the spirit has a role in creation. Um, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, Genesis 1, of course, is one of the most fascinating places in the Old Testament to think about the Trinity because um, God says, the Lord says, um, let us make God, or let, sorry, let us make man in our own image, right, uses the plural uh, pronouns there, um, which speak to, we would say now, looking back on that um, with through the lens of redemptive history, speaks to God's eternal triune counsel and nature within himself. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I would, I would want to stick to the language um, of, of John 1, of, of Colossians 1, of the Nicene Creed. Um, I would want to say that it was by the Son that all things were made and that the Father was intimately involved in that act. Um, it was not the son acting on his own, so to speak. Yeah, Eric. Of God, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, let's, um, let's move into the decrees of God um, for a little bit this morning and the 15 minutes or so we have remaining. Um, On the back of the page, um, your handout, um, we begin chapter 3 of God's eternal decree. Now, I've talked about the way in which chapter 2 is a a very, and this is definitely true, all of what's in chapter 2 is, uh, you know, with the exception of the Philoque clause, um, you know, commonly agreed upon teaching about God and his person um, in 
uh, in the, the church universal. Um, but eternal decree, this is something um, where um, we are speaking now of what we would describe as reformed theology, Protestant reformed theology, um, that would be different from, um, from other branches of the church. Um, particularly, of course, in the context in which this was written, it was different from both the Arminian church um, or those who were following um, the Arminian teachings um, um, and, uh, the, uh, and also the Roman Catholic church as well in terms of the way the Catholic church spoke of um, um, the, um, the way in which God's decrees worked out. Interestingly, though, there was much more, I don't know the reason for all of this, but at this time, I would say that Lutherans, the Lutheran Church and the Protestant Reformed Presbyterian uh, Church were much more closely aligned in terms of the ways that they spoke of the sovereignty of God and God's decrees. Certainly Martin Luther was someone who spoke very highly of God's sovereignty um, over all things, including salvation. Um, and some of that has been lost, I think, in modern Lutheranism, which is, I don't, I don't know all the reasons for that historically. Um, but just with that context, let me read what we believe, um, at least what I believe, what our church teaches. And it's important to say this. This is not, in order for you to be a member of this congregation, you are not required to believe everything that the Westminster Standards um, believe. You are probably required to believe, you know, more or less. You can quibble with the language, but you basically have to believe everything chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession says um, in terms of who God is and what, you know, the, the, tri the Trinity and things like that. Um, uh, you have to believe certain things about the way in which um, Jesus died for our sin and rose for our salvation and that you put your trust in him. Um, but you are not required to subscribe to um, 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 the details of this chapter, chapter 3, or other chapters that work through this issue of election and God's sovereignty. Um, and that's a good thing, I think. Now, if you're going to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon, in our church, you do have to believe these things. I believe these things. Um, I will teach them, you know, unequivocally, um, because I think they're what the Word of God teaches. Um, but I just want to make that distinction that it's not required in order for you to be a full, good standing member of our church to believe um, all that chapter 3 um, teaches in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. Are, okay. yes. Although it would be hard to take an exception to this, as you know, <laughs> with this chapter. <laughs> yeah, generally. Yes, yes, generally. And I have, as a pastor, uh, multiple differences with standards, and some of our elders and deacons do as well. We take difference. We can state differences with the standards. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So here's what we believe. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his only will of his own will rather freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of his creatures nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established and you see there in parenthesis the letters um, that correspond to the scripture passages. And I would encourage you to go home and if this interests you to take the time to look up those scripture references that were provided by the divines. That's not, those aren't from me. Those are from the writers of this document. 
Um, so in this, in this first sentence or this first clause, um, the, uh, the, the divines are saying this. They're saying God's decree is eternal, by which they mean um, it has existed for eternity. Um, there was never a time when God's um, decree was not. Um, he um, does not shift his decree from one um, uh, direction to another, but it is, it is consistent. It, it carries through. Um, it is with, like God without beginning or end. Um, uh, God is, uh, God's decree is wise, um, they're saying. Um, and by that they mean that the decree of God um, is, um, reflects his wisdom. Um, and by wisdom we mean that um, God um, uh, knows what he's doing. Um, God um, is, has assigned everything um, to work out in order to um, um, glorify himself by the best means possible, we would say. Um, that, that God, um, there, there is wisdom that is inherent in the decree. It is not arbitrary. Um, it is not um, impersonal. Um, but all the full personality um, of God is inherent in his decree. Um, it is wise in that way. Um, God's um, counsel is holy. Um, his decree is holy. Um, there can be no evil, no wickedness, um, nothing that is impure um, in the decree of God. And that is because um, God himself is holy and without sin. Uh, and as James says, as is quoted um, later in, or referenced later in this um, paragraph, um, God um, cannot even tempt us with sin. Um, uh, no temptation comes from God, um, James says, and because it is not in God's nature um, to do that. Um, God's will is most is eternal, wise, holy. It's free. Um, it is um, not contingent on what his creatures do. It is not contingent on something that might happen in creation that God might have to respond to. Um, it, God's decree is solely dependent upon him and not upon us in a fundamental way. Um, he has ordained um, freely, um, without compulsion, without... Um, uh, needing to ask anyone permission, um, everything that happens. Um, God's decree is unchangeable. Um, it, is, it is not something that we can resist. It is not something that we can um, turn aside. Um, it is um, unchangeable. He unchangeably ordains or whatsoever comes to pass. Um, so we could say it's absolute, um, that God absolutely um, ordains what happens um, he does not, again, ask us for our permission. Um, he does not require us, um, um, or he requires us um, to submit to him, um, but not in some philosophical way. Um, we, um, we do submit to him, all of us, uh, whether we realize it or not. Um, God's decree is comprehensive. Um, it covers every aspect of every uh, thing that has ever happened um, in all of created history. Um, from the the smallest, um, you know, movement of the sand, the, the uh, grains of sand on the seashore to um, the dramatic uh, movements of history that have taken place, the, the great battles, the, you know, the, the uh, inventions, the all, whatever you might um, uh, ascribe as being significant in history. Um, from the smallest thing to the, the largest thing, um, all of it has been ordained um, by God. However, we want to say there are three qualifiers, and so they give these three qualifications. They state those um, truths boldly, and I would state them boldly. I think they're rooted in the scriptures. 
Um, but there are three qualifiers that the divines add um, that we might not misunderstand what they mean. They say, all these things are true, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin. So first qualifier, God is not the author, the originator um, of sin. Second qualifier, um, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. God does not do violence to the will of his creatures. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Basically, that means that God doesn't make people do things they don't want to do. People do what they want to do. Um, it's merely that God has also ordained those things to come to pass. Um, uh, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Second causes are things that are um, what we might call, you know, for, for um, let's see, Lethem puts it down here. Um, in the case of free agents, this, the second cause is the, th that the thing that happens is their own choosing. So um, a second cause could be a, a choice that you or I make. Um, or second causes could be things like the atmospheric conditions that lead to it to rain, um, or the way in which the solar system works so that the sun comes up in the morning. Um, um, uh, those things are second causes. All right, so Chad, Chad Van Dixhorn um, says, now the declaration that God ordains all things and yet does not command sin leaves many questions unanswered. Um, but as we push toward the outer limits of what we can understand of God and his ways, it is important always to remember what we do know, and what we do know is that God is holy. I just want to talk about this distinction for a moment that the writers are making. Um, it is impossible. The scripture never fully reconciles for us this question. How can it be that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and God is holy and without sin, and sin entered the world? That I, I don't believe, at least, that the scripture ever reconciles that question in a fundamental way, that it gives us the, the answer to know how those things all relate. And so essentially what we're doing here is we're trying to hold all of these things at once, um, that, that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Um, I think clearly the scriptures teach that in a million different ways, um, that God is also holy and without sin and cannot, um, as James says, even tempt um, others with sin. Or as 1 John says, God is, is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the other proof text that's used here from 1 John. Um, and the reality in history that um, Eve ate of the tree and Adam ate of the tree and they fell into sin um, and sin entered the world. Um, and, and so that we're holding these things in tension and I, I can't fully explain to you how that all works out, but I absolutely believe that all of those things are true. Um, that there is sin, that God ordains all things, but God, because he is holy, is not the author or originator um, of sin himself. Um, uh, Dixhorn goes on to say, the second fence is almost as important as the first. The, that fence or that qualifier is that God doesn't do violence to the will of his creatures. And the point is that we need to remember that God's ordaining of whatsoever comes to pass does not do violence to the will of men and women. Um, God um, um, is sovereign, but in a very real way, we are free. And in every way, we are responsible for our actions. We hear this when we listen to the Apostle Peter preaching at Pentecost to a vast crowd, containing so many who approved of Jesus' crucifixion. Consider how the apostle could stand up and acknowledge that Jesus was, quote, handed over to them by 
God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And this is a common theme in, in Acts and in Luke, that, that things happen because God made them happen. And yet Peter could say with equal authority that they were wicked men who themselves put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross and therefore must repent of that sin because they are responsible for it, because they did it, um, because they wanted to do it. Um, they desired to put him to death. Um, Dixworn says, we are not puppets. The honest truth is that we sin freely, we sin willingly, and we know this. And I think this is absolutely true. Um, um, God does not do violence um, to our will in the way that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Um, he gives us responsibility. He gives us freedom morally um, to choose what we want. And we, uh, when we sin, uh, we do so because not because God is making us do it, but because we want to do it. Yes, sir. Joseph. It's okay. Keep going. Joshua. Coat of many colors. Yep. Slavery. Joseph. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Joseph narrative is one that speaks deeply of the way in which God intends for the, uh, the growth and maturation of his his children, of his church, of his creation. Yeah, there's a death and resurrection in, in Joseph. Um, there's an enthronement. Um, yeah, the, the Joseph is, is a fascinating prefiguring of Christ in that way. I mean, in terms of that, that idea of them thinking about being near Cairo before the time <laughs> lies in Joseph. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's right. So James is saying reading the scriptures narratively is the only way to make sense of these things, um, that, that God is both um, holy and also sovereign and also not the author of sin. Um, and I think that's right. I think if you read the scriptures from beginning to end, friends, you will not find a God um, who could be um, the author of sin. Um, you won't find it. That, that's not in the character of the God who's revealed himself in the scriptures. Um, and yet you will also find a God that obviously rules over history in every detail, in every way. Um, nothing is left outside of his examination or his power. And, um, and there's no way to, to 
figure out how those lines intersect. I think you have to just hold on to both of them um, in some sense and um, hold on tight to both, um, that God is sovereign and that he is holy. Um, and there's also the reality of sin in the world. Any other question on that before we wrap up this morning? We are just getting into this topic, so there will be more to come next week. All right, well, really what I would do is encourage you to really wrestle with that question. Like if you're going to push back against this doctrine, you're either going to say one of two things. Either God is not sovereign over all things. There are some things that he does not ordain. Or God is in some way capable of being the author of sin, um, that he, he has that capacity, that he would do something like that. And I don't think he can do that and read the scriptures uh, faithfully. Um, and I, I don't have the answer to how all that intersects and, and you know, corresponds to one another. Um, but I, I believe that those things are, are both true, um, that God is both sovereign and holy and um, thus cannot be the author of sin. I'm going to have to wrap up. I'm sorry. You, you, no, 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 you're fine. You can grab me after. Let me, um, let me, let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, let's, um, we give you thanks for your kindness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation you've given to us um, of your son. We do pray that as Luther has enjoined us um, to do, that we might hold fast to that word, Father, um, where you have given us all that we need to know of yourself. Um, we give you thanks um, for um, the way in which you rule over all things, um, in the way in which you are holy. We pray, Father, you would give us wis great wisdom as we contemplate um, this, in some ways, most um, high doctrine um, of your providence, of your election, of your decree. And um, give us grace, Father, to contemplate these things um, with humility and with wisdom and charity and with faithfulness. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.